the enormous pride that we've had to be really a national leader in housing, a national leader in employment of people who live in, in recovery and have them be important and valuable members of the team and, and be a part of our family. I think that gets to the heart and soul of Mental Health Association Oklahoma. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Welcome to part two of our multi-part series featuring the association's longtime CEO, Mike Bros, looking back on the history of the Mental Health Association as his retirement nears. In this episode, Mike will share behind-the-scenes stories of how the association was able to develop sustainable and affordable housing solutions for ending homelessness, and he'll touch on the ripple effects that caused in the community. Mike also talks about the importance of hiring people who have experienced mental illness, homelessness, substance use, and justice involvement because, as Mike always says, employment is treatment. In addition, Mike explores the history of the association's suicide prevention initiatives, including Teen Screen and Question Persuade Refer, which is better known statewide as QPR. If you'd like to celebrate Mike's 27 years with the association and support our ongoing statewide mission, I ask that you please donate today at mhaok.org forward slash Mike Bros. Thank you in advance for your generosity. Okay, let's get this history lesson started. The mental health download starts now. Okay, so to get this interview started, I asked Mike about Greg Shin. Greg is our chief housing officer, and he's also the associate director. And when Greg came in 2001 from New York, I want to say it was a game changer. And so I'll let Mike tell that story. Greg, for those that are listening, just a little bit about his background. He grew up in Kansas, born in Kansas City, grew up in Cleveland, moved to Boston, spent some time in actually a music major there. And then he moved to New York City and uh, got involved in street outreach there in New York City. And then he ran a uh, men's homeless shelter about a block from uh, Ground Zero there in the Wall Street area. And then he was doing that. And then his wife, Karen, at that time, she had taken a job here over in Claremore and they decided to move to Tulsa. And I'll never forget being out on my back porch one night and and going through the resumes, thinking, who in the world is going to be able to take this position? Because our housing was growing, and I'll, I'll kind of come back to that in a little bit. We were starting to really now begin to raise you know, funds and to have, have Greg there. And anyway, I found that resume, and turned out Greg was in town looking for a house and called him up after the Super 8 Motel in Vertigris. And the next morning, we met together, and he came walking in with a long ponytail, and, and we began to talk. Here's this guy from uh, New York City, and then here's this old country bumpkin from liberal Kansas, and we're sitting across the table. And I mean, never forget, I took him over to Walker Hall and showed him what we were doing, told him about what we were trying to raise money for and this vision that we had with housing. And Greg, I think, was on board from the first hour. And he said, man, he told me later, remember, he remembers himself thinking, hey, I think I can work for this guy and love this vision. And then, of course, uh, he and Bill Packard, who I've talked about in episode one quite a bit, Bill and I and Greg, and Greg learned so much from Bill, but Greg came in knowing a lot, particularly about actually service delivery. But then Greg learned from Bill about more about housing development side of, of this business. And Bill and I were 
our partnership. And of course, Judy Alexander, as I mentioned in episode one, uh, as our chair of our housing development task force, uh, real instrumental in Mac Rosser, of course, and, and others. Donnie House, I, I would be remiss not to mention Donnie House, who has chaired our housing committee for many, many years and uh, has been an incredible part of this whole thing. But we began to really, Greg began to integrate and it kind of became the partnership of really kind of dreaming and visioning was Bill Packard and, and Greg Shin and myself. Again, there were others involved in that whole visioning process and Gail Richards and her mom and dad and Judy Kishner and her family from the Ann and Henry Zero family. They came later. I'll, I'll probably get into that more in, in, in the last episode. But we really began then to develop an idea to have a, a capital campaign. And I remember still Mac Rosser and I, Mac was the president-elect. Of course, our tradition for many, many years from the earliest years that I, when I first came, is to have the president-elect to go attend with me at our national mental health, national mental health association conference. Now, Mental Health America in Washington D.C. and take them and let the president-elect really see the vision of the scope of the net of the network. And other people went too some some years when we could afford it. An opportunity presented itself, but 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 always the CEO executive director at that time and the president-elect would go together. Mac and I, he was the incoming board president. He and I went to the conference and then we were out one night on the rooftop of a restaurant called Perry's in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. And just to be completely candid, we were about two glasses of wine in with dinner. And uh, all of a sudden, Mac Rosser says, when we get back to Tulsa, I think what we need to do is go talk to Gail Richards and Maxine and Jack and, of course, Bill and Greg. And I think we need to raise money and have a capital campaign and uh, buy some more housing because we've actually, since we've actually clearly identified the need for it. And we were now, walk. we had Walker Hall, we had the Baltimore Apartments already, but it was still very, very small at this point. And to be able to, and of course, again, Bill Packard's uh, with his model of the debt free model again. Now, I think, Matt, it's important for the listeners to kind of, this is a very important concept that in the world of development that we have always said, we, the Mental Health Association Oklahoma and all of our key volunteers, we have always said other cities and other communities have the capacity to use this model, which is going out and rather than always looking to say, for example, low-income tax credits, which are work great, but they have they, they're expensive and they're labor intensive and there's a lot of a lot of time and money that goes into, you know, not only obtaining the, the, the tax credits, but all the uh, reporting that goes on there. And we've done that and we definitely support that. But that's been one of the major sources of other communities. But really, our model, again, Bill Packer, this was his idea, was this uh, go out and raise private money, debt-free money, and, and then go out and use that to leverage sometimes public money or to, in some way, shape, or form, be able to actually go out and buy a an apartment building outright and buy that and own it debt-free. And of course, the debt-free model is if you don't have a debt service, you can keep the rents as low as possible for our target population, which is very low income individuals who need affordable housing, as well as people who have been identified as chronically homeless on the streets with a disability and for a significant period of time and under the HUD guidelines on that. And then be able to then bring them in and provide not only housing, but but also the wraparound support services they needed. And so that was really kind of where back in that period, in the early 2000s, 
but we really, the, the, the capital campaign business really started right in there. And so we began to raise that money. Maxine, Jack, Gail, Mac Rosser, we began to team together. And I want to mention in here, Nancy Atwater. Nancy Atwater, Atwater and Associates. Nancy is a, a, a former Park and Recreation Director for the City of Tulsa, Executive Director of the Center, and really well-established. And of course, when I uh, met Nancy, she was in a, the consulting business of helping people with capital campaigns and, and being campaign counsel. And we hired Nancy and, and Nancy uh, was very instrumental in all of our capital campaigns of guiding us, advising us, assisting us in all the aspects related to capital campaigns, which are, they are unique and, and it, times very valuable and important to an organization, but they're also, they have a certain degree of sophistication and complexity about who to approach and how to approach and when to approach and and how to ask. And there's just a lot that goes into that at Nancy Atwater. This is a shout out for you for, and thanks for all the the assistance uh, that you've given us over those years for those capital campaigns that were all successful, I might add, and and most of them, as I remember, exceeded their goal. So, but anyway, we went out there and began to raise this money and then as money began to come in and then we began to have enough accumulated, we began to look, we were looking for properties. We, we worked with a commercial realtor over the years, a couple of different ones. And we went out and began to then buy and identify properties. We actually bought a map properties that weren't on the sale and our realtor would approach the owner. I, I learned kind of, I learned a lot I, as an old social worker. We, I didn't know much about housing or particularly purchasing in properties. And and again, our model was where the, the seniors, the housing staff, our senior staff, our job, Bill and Greg, we had to present the business model and show that it could cash flow. And of course, our we had certain criteria that had to be met. And of course, then we had to put together the business plan. And then we would present that to the Housing Development Task Force, chaired by Judy Alexander. And Mac was always one of the constants on there. Tim Roberts was on and off different times. Donnie House was a very state constant member, Gail Richards, sometimes her mom and dad, but always Gail. And, and later, Judy Kishner began to start to attend those meetings. That, that came a little later. But we began to really, we would work and vet those and always needed it to be by near our people. As as you know, Matt, many of them do not have cars, cannot participate in the economy with the maintenance and ownership and access to an automobile when we need it. And you and I and and most of the listeners right right now take that for granted. The population we serve, they don't have that. So we had to think about access, easy access to public transportation, walking distance to grocery shopping, and walking distance to pharmacy services. And the last one was that businesses in the area where individuals might have a potential to be able to obtain employment at some of the businesses in that area. So when you put all that criteria in there in the hopper, and then you put in it's got to be a, a business model that can cash flow and maintain itself and have enough for property for maintenance improvements and those sort of things. And many, many people over the years, Matt, would ask me, when I would travel nationally and in our reputation, the housing, our national conference, uh, the Zero Sym- first national conference we did with the Zero Symposium on housing development. And then on conferences I would attend and people would say, how do you guys do that housing thing? And we would describe the model and what have you. And they say, well, how did you, over- how do you overcome NIMBY? Oh, what's NIMBY? And we're going to talk about that in the, in the last episode about, I want to talk about it in that episode, the Yale apart, the story of the Yale apartments, because I think that's an important story. Bill Packard taught us, our housing development task force, he taught us that the fair housing, federal fair housing amendments of 1988, that it basically made it illegal to discriminate against 
people for housing, race, religion, ethnicity, age, and disability, mental or physical disability. It doesn't matter. You can't discriminate. And unfortunately, there are still land, private landlords out there that can find ways to get around that. But that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a whole other story for another time. But, but those are the criteria. So we were able to go out and buy properties and people could live there by right. And for listeners, the, the, the idea of displacement. So one of the things that one of our hallmark things, again, Bill taught us this, we have never, ever displaced when we bought a property. We never displaced people who live there. People have always assumed that, that we displace people and then move people that we want to live in there. Never. It was always about always uh, uh, buying the property, not disrupting the current residents, renewing the leases as they requested. If they moved out, then we would move. We might move somebody we were targeting to get housing who had been homeless without housing. We might move them in, but always watching to a good mixture, fifty-fifty or sixty-forty, whatever uh, happened to be. Is there are people that were in the what we call program housing with rent subsidies and services with them? And mixed in with just, you know, people, market rate renters looking for affordable housing in the community that they could afford. Of course, their HUD standard 30%. None of us should be spending in in excess of 30% of our income on our housing. And that, that was the way this was all designed. Again, Bill Packard was the master designer of this whole model. And so I give that little bit of background, Matt, because I think it's really important to kind of hear. So again, working with our commercial realtor, we we go out, we'd raise money, we would have enough money to actually purchase something. Our commercial realtor would be looking for properties. Then we would then get all the numbers, all the information from the seller and the realty, commercial realty was all, it's all transparent, has to be all above board. Everything has to be out there. We would take all that information. We would develop a business plan. We would have a housing development task force chaired by Judy Alexander. We would process through it, do all the vetting that we needed to do. Once the housing development task force was satisfied, they would make a recommendation to the housing committee of the mental health association that recommending that we purchase this piece of property, whatever that piece of property we were targeting at the time. And so then the housing committee would vet it and then they would vote in turn up and down. And then they would make a rec- they would make a recommendation to the board of directors that we uh, the, all the vetting had been done and make a recommendation to the board of directors to purchase the purchase the, the said property. And that was how the process, Matt, that was how we did it over and over again. And of course, then once that was approved, then Judy Alexander would become, we all had input in onto the price and there's a lot of discussion about the price. But once the negotiation started, uh, only one person working with the commercial realtor would do the negotiating. And that was always Judy Alexander. And Judy's out there, hopefully Judy's listening today and she's, I'm guarantee you right now, she's ready to go. If we call her up and say, okay, here we go again. And she'll convene that task force and the process starts all over again. So, so anyway, we, that was how we did it, Matt, over and over again. And that's been replicated and that's the process. Now I'm going to kind of loop back over to the fundraising side. Now, again, this was a very, at the time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that has an incredible history of philanthropic giving. And also capital campaigns. The, the, the philanthropic community in Tulsa is second to none in terms of raising private money and being able to, the tradition in Tulsa that exi- has existed, and, and it's also true in Oklahoma City and other communities as well, but Tulsa had this 
rich heritage of supporting its nonprofits. The belief and people who, the families and the people who have made up this town and the, the, the prominent families, the, the philanthropic families, uh, that you, you give back to the community and you grow entities, whether that's a faith community or a nonprofit, or that will help elevate the quality of life for every Tulsa. And that in turn elevates the quality of life for all of us. And so so, the, but the idea, the typical way we do it, if we were going to have a capital campaign, we would go to an architect and work with the architect and the architect's uh, architectural firm would help us develop a rendering of the, what the what the proposed deal. And then you would go into a potential funder and put up the, the rendering, say, we're having a capital campaign and 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 this is, we need a new, we're out of space or our space is... Uh, outgrown its usefulness to us. We need new pro- a new location, and here's what we would like to purchase or raise money for and build. And, and that that is a very good model and one that we we have used on occasion. But but overall, it was very very unique to go to a funder and say, here's what we want to do, and we want you to pledge or give us this money, and then we have enough money. They would say to us, well, what where's your drawing? Well, well, what property are you looking at? And we would say, well, we don't we don't have that property identified as yet. What? What's that? And I think this is where I think Maxine and Jack Zero and Gail Richards were absolutely instrumental by them buying into the model. And that gave us that kind of street cred that we needed in talking to different funders. And they would see the Zero family many times would, would make the lead gift. Uh, both Zero families would make lead gifts many times. And then when other donors would see that they were in, that was a real seal and real, that gave us a lot of credibility that this, this idea, it's interesting because now we did it so many times, Matt, that nobody questions the model funders get it. They know what we're doing. But back in those days, I think it's really important for the listeners to understand that was a very, very unique idea. You want us to pledge or give you money for a property that you're going to buy, but you don't know what property it is and you don't even know where it is or how you're going to do it. You have this criteria, but what? What is that? And but I think one of the things is I remember Matt is we appealed to them. Many of these people were very successful business people, and what we said to them was, "Well, think about it. By having this money, then suddenly we are a cash buyer, and then also then we can negotiate a, a, a price and get the very very maximum amount of apartment units for the dollar spent." And these people, when it was, I always noticed over and over again when it was presented in that way, these people are good business people, and they as they could see that ah. Hadn't thought of that in that way. That makes perfect sense. And again, with the help and credibility of particularly the Zero families, we'd have lead gifts from the Kaiser family. We'd have, you know, lead gifts from other philanthropic families in the community. And then we would go out and have the money and go out. And then we would do exactly what you said. And I was understanding that. We'd go out and negotiate and identify property. And of course, I, I could mention many, many properties. In the early days, in this phase, our model map was to buy small properties anywhere from, I think, our smallest still that we still own, eight units. But the average was like 12 to 24 units. And I remember Bill used to talk about that. Uh, 12 to 24 is our target. Most of the time we would buy a property and nobody would even notice. Nobody would ever say anything to us. It was just business as usual. And we did that over and over and over again. There were times where we would actually meet with different property owners. And I can remember one story in particular over in the TU area. I'll just call it that a property that actually we since have sold 
still some of the people we uh, rented to actually still live there, but we sold that property, but it's in the TU area. And the neighbors heard about what we were doing and they wanted to meet with us. And I'm, I'll never forget this, the leadership of this neighborhood association. They said, well, we're really glad about it. And we were ready for them to come at us. And they said, well, when since you guys have bought the property, we have quit seeing police cars in the neighborhood, you know, we've been afraid to let our children walk down to the neighborhood quick trip from our house by themselves because they have to go by that property. And, but we don't see the problems and we see you guys on the property a lot. That hasn't been the history. And so we're, we just want you to know, we, how can we be supportive? Oh, that was, we just about fell out of our chairs. We were so, and of course that story's been told many times. And because as an illustration of that, our always our, we call it our good neighbor policy about always being good neighbors, having our properties look nice, taking care of them, maintaining them. If a neighbor is having a problem in with some of our residents or with our property anyway, we would jump on that and get to the bottom of that and address that as quickly as possible. And again, those have been our models. And obviously, we'll get more into it in part three, the latter half of this. But, but you know, now we have 1,500 units in 17 different neighborhoods here in the Tulsa area. And we would have never dreamed that. I remember when we got to uh, that first capital campaign, I think our goal was to try to have a, about 185 units. And I think we 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 hit about 150. And and then I would say, you know, well, we need 500. If we ever get 500, that's it, man. We can't, that's all we can do. And then we hit 500 and then we said, man, I mean, 750, we can't go any bigger than that, you know? And then, so it kind of went from there, which again, we'll get more into that, Matt, in part three. But this was a very, very dynamic time of rapid growth for the Mental Health Association. Once we began to acquire properties, we had to hire people and to maintain those properties. Now, this is a very important moment. Up until now, in, in, in episode one, part one, I talked about the Independence Council that to welcome people affected by a mental illness. And then, which was really the Independence Council, in my mind, was a, a forerunner to what we now do as the uh, the Denver House Drop-In Center and the uh, Lottie House Drop-In Center in Oklahoma City. This was a for the Independence Council was really a forerunner to that peer-to-peer. And then we really got into creating connections. And that first grant that we, we did, a partnership with Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, where they funded uh, a grant that we still have to hire people who now we would call them recovery support specialists and RSSs, recovery support specialists, people who live in recovery, uh, who have uh, uh, taken a 40-hour course and then passed a a final exam, and then they get their certification. And that was the first deal with, and I think to my knowledge, that was the first grant of its kind, Matt, in Oklahoma at that time. We had really learned about people with in recovery with serious mental illness being employed with benefits many times. We had really learned that from people in Georgia and it spread out here and we found people with the Department of uh, Rehabilitation Services, Oklahoma State Department of Rehabilitation Services uh, here in Oklahoma who were really open to that. They began to, they actually funded a program with us to, to really start that. So there were some really cool things happening then about, so we began to, the shift began for the Mental Health Association of seeing people living in recovery, having a place just to go, but actually to be able, those that can and wanted to and are able to actually have an opportunity to really have employment and to be able to serve people who also are affected. And that kind of merged with, by us you know, buying these properties, we had to maintain the property. So we get to post jobs and we had people who were people, again, determined those days 
days we used more than we don't use it any longer, but that those days we would refer to as consumers. They would come in and they would look at our job posting board and they began to apply for jobs with us. Some of them lived in our housing. Some of them didn't. Some of them just knew of us and came around and were friends of the organization, but they actually began to come in and apply for those jobs and we began to hire them. And suddenly one day I remember Greg Shin and I looking at each other talking about it and we suddenly said, man, I think we have a lot of people who live in recovery who work for us. We were like, yeah, yeah, we do. And, you know, sometimes things happen very careful planning. And then there's uh, things that happen. Mike Bros just sort of like back into it. And suddenly things happen. And, and then you give it, you give it shape and form later and you, and you, you give it a name and you, you shape it inductive reasoning and backing into things. And there's sometimes very careful, different ways to accomplish you know, big things. And so different models work. And in that model, it just kind of, we sort of backed into it. And then suddenly this whole idea kind of both here with us, but also it's converging with ODMHSAS where they were, they were attending many of the same conferences we were hearing some of the same speakers nationally. And so, and then all over the country, things started to explode. People having employment opportunities. And of course, uh, for our listeners, one of our little mantras has been work is treatment. Employment is treatment, that there's something about somebody having the opportunity. And people, when we think about it with serious mental illness, particularly schizophrenia, um, those symptoms present themselves in late teens and early 20s, right at the time people are beginning their careers. Of course, that was very much um, Clever Beer's experience. Also, right there as he was beginning his career, as he got out of college, he had his first psychotic break. And that's so many of these people either haven't had the chance to work or they were just beginning their careers. It was interrupted by their illness manifesting itself. And many times, either they, it was, it was a number of years later until they could, you know, have a chance to be, an opportunity to be employed again, seek employment, or maybe they just were messaged by well-meaning mental health professionals, which we disagree on is, hey, you just need to get on disability and that's your lot in life. And there you go. And one, you can do both. You can get disability, but also work. But also some people choose, say, I want to give it a run at trying to be employed like everybody else before I have to maybe potentially as a fallback apply for disability. That, that, that was, those were philosophical, very important ideas that were really in the swirl of things during that time that happened to coincide on this concrete, raising money, developing the housing, but all this service provision case management, really engaging people, peer-to-peer, recovery support specialists, the, the Creating Connections program, all these things began to really, really blossom and flower. Really, at the same time, we went from five employees and suddenly were 15 employees and suddenly were 35 employees and had this happen and suddenly we've got 50 employees. My God, how did we get 50 employees? And, you know, and how did this happen? And what, how are we going to do this? And then, and then we began to have these, I want to mention these annual surveys and blind surveys with our staff, anonymous, voluntary to take, set up where usually we had graduate students in the social work program, gather all the information, even market it, even help us design the, the survey online to get the employees to go in and take that. And we began to discover about half of our employees lived in some type of recovery. And by the way, I want to kind of mention recovery. Early on, Matt, our definition was just around mental illness, but over years, it kind of expanded to include recovery with mental illness, but also recovery from substance abuse, recovery from homelessness, and 
recovery from incarceration. And many people who work for us on the survey identified that they checked all four of those boxes and that they had been homeless, they had been incarcerated, they had identified mental illness they were being treated for, and they also had got involved in self-medication and had become addicted and used various types of substances, alcohol and others, prescribed and non-prescribed. So we began to really, through those years, there's some years there where that definition, which we still, I think the association still uh, very much embraces those two uh, definitions, Matt, about what those are, what recovery is. And I think that's important for the listeners to understand when we use, sometimes we use code, we say a person living in recovery, people first language, that's, we're, we're kind of encompassing all that. But many, many people that we work with, particularly people who had a serious untreated mental illness for any period of time, or have been particularly on the streets, many of them have been arrested and charged with felony convictions, misdemeanors, trespassing, Usually what we would refer to as uh, not violent, but usually it's almost substance abuse, possession or use, and you know then other accumulation of other types of minor trespassing and or sleeping in a in a place where they would shouldn't been sleeping on private property, what have you. And so it's really uh, many many people that we work with, and particularly who now were employed with us in the survey each year began to let us know who our workforce was. And this has been something, Matt, of enormous pride. And I, I, I say that, I think Greg and I and, and Bill, and but all the staff began to really, you know, Mark Davis came a little later, but he, right in this era, he, he began, he came over and joined our team. And we really began to, you know, just this whole vision of housing and services in a community. And, and th- this thing became just enormous sources of pride for us. And, to, and that continues to this day. Sometimes we probably, on, on our worst days, we take it for granted. But on our best days, and certainly for me right now, in my transition is this is something I look back on and share with many, many listeners to this podcast. The enormous pride that we've had to be really a national leader in housing, a national leader in employment of people who live in, in recovery and have them be uh, important, invaluable members of the team and, and be a part of our family. I think that gets to the heart and soul of Mental Health Association. In Oklahoma and what we over those years evolved into. And you've got on this one extreme, you've got Bill Packard, city planner, and all of our housing stuff meticulously planned out. I mean, just Bill would spend hours and hours mapping out, and, and that was what he was trained to do. He was a master planner. But then there's Greg and Mike over here. And I would be remiss not to mention Bob Altoff and, you know, his work with the, the bakery. And uh, in the latter part of this phase, the Altamont Bakery became, and Bob Altoff and Rabbi Mark Fitzerman really formed this kind of, began to have coffee and talk about this thing and more of a structured, a different, and, and now, so employment, we begin to think of it not just in-house employment. We were now thinking about people getting employment out in the community. And really the first really structured example of that, you know, I mean, there were other pieces to it that came about, but the most focused piece of that was our partnership with Benea Muna. And they had raised money and they built a commercial kitchen and Bob and, and Mark Fitzerman began to envision, have a vision of the uh, Altamont Cookies. Of course, a shout out to Rabbi Fitzerman, who uh, loves to cook and has these incredible recipes he's developed for different types of cookies. And that. But the idea that we would hire people in the name Altamont, many people, where does the name Altamont come from? In, in 2000, we bought my favorite, personal favorite property. I'll reveal that now, is Altamont down at 12 East 12. 
formerly 12 and 12, formerly owned by Wings of Freedom. We bought it in 2000, and I always like to say it would be boarded up today if we wouldn't have come along and done all that we could, all that we have done to revitalize and uh, repurpose this uh, incredible building located at 12 East 12. That was an old residence hotel from the 30s. And so to repurpose that for housing for people who were homeless, mentally ill, histories of substance abuse, incarceration, what have you, to be able to live, be able to have a safe place to be and be in a, in a community. All these things were happening, of course. So the, the initial bakers for the bakery were people who were re- residents that Bob recruited, Bob Altoff recruited to go over and be the first bakers. And so the, thus was born the name Altamont Bakery. The bakers go over and meet and partner up with members of the congregation there at B'nai Amuna, and they bake cookies together, and they build relationships together, and they, they befriend each other, and they help each other, and they love each other, and they care for each other, and to build that community. And the Altamont Bakery was a very, very big, important sort of moment in the, in, in the history of the Mental Health Association. And that was finally the evidence and proof that people could work out in the community. And then people began to get jobs uh, in grocery stores. One of our longtime residents, I saw him. He's worked down at Reesers at 15th and Lewis for many, many years. I saw him the other day. I see him. We say hello. You know, it, it's just been an incredible thing, Matt, to watch it all. And in my position, I got I, I would get a lot of credit publicly. In uh, you know, a lot of times I was the media spokesman for the organization. Particularly in the early years, I was almost exclusively did all the media interviews. We're long past that. Thank goodness we have other people much more qualified to comment than I am on different topics. But in those days, so so because of that, and because of my position, I would everybody would try to people think, oh, you thought this housing up, man? This guy must be really smart. Uh, I didn't think it up. If I have any credit, it's that I, I recognize that a, a place for a person to live. What an incredible life-changing event that was. And it set people on a completely different trajectory of their life. I was smart enough to recognize that, but that was really all Bill Packard. Um, and so I'd get a lot of attention and people think I would do it. And and really, it's been more me just watching it happen. I mean, I think I've just done my part to try to enhance it or facilitate it or, as I like to say, empower it to happen, use my position. I've never saw myself as is the the brains. I'm, I've always seen myself as a maybe a facilitator. I've always said my best skill is to identify what the problem is and figure out who do I need around the table to solve that problem and use my position to get those t- people around that table, whether it's staff or volunteers or paid contractors. And then let's okay, let's figure out how we're going to solve this. That's that's been my really my only management tool I've ever utilized all, over all these years. And we've just been blessed with all these incredibly talented people. And that's what's built the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma community, family, that there is a sense of family in the association that will live on after I'm gone. And something that I hope all the listeners and people in the future who might come back and listen to this podcast, they might really take that into their heart and soul as they come to work for us in the future, or they begin to volunteer for us in the future, either on a formal board type position or just a a committee member or just an at-large donor, volunteer person, is that we're all, you're, you're a part of a big whole. And the whole is greater than some of the parts. That's cliche, but it's really true. And so that's where I sit for my position. If watch this thing, it's like a garden that's just grown and flowered and, and it's expanded. And it's just been an incredible honor for the last 27 years to be a part of that. At the same time, all of this stuff was going on with housing and employment. 
services began. And, and we remember back, we, the Mental Health Association has always been involved. Obviously, we talked about in part one, hotline, that was a suicide prevention, probably our first uh, that I know of. There may have been something previous to that, but the first suicide prevention program that I, that the association had. And then, and then in 1997, we had three young females out at Jinx High School who died by suicide, which was a first cluster of suicides that I had ever come across. And in my career, they happen from time to time. To my knowledge, we, in my career, we've had three in the state of Oklahoma, two here in the Tulsa area, one in the Oklahoma City metro Edmond area, the ones I'm aware of where you have a what is classified in the literature as a cluster. So you have one, and a lot of times these have been, these are all the ones I'm referring to have been in a school. They could be in different settings, but you have one and then you have another and you're another. And this isn't a, what's called it very, very different to the very, very extremely rare of a suicide pact. The cluster is more the idea that, that a person, young people about the research shows about 20% of every adolescent in a given year has had thoughts of killing themselves. And in about 10% of those, about 10% of the adolescent population will actually make some type of an attempt. A, a very much smaller percentage would actually die by suicide. But in the case of this in 97, these three girls within about a 45-day period died by suicide. And then there was a suicide over in a young 16-year-old in Muskogee and, and a, a guy a young man home from Air Force leave who died, who lived, his family lived over in the Tulsa Sand Springs area. So we really, though, we formed a task force to look at it. And we said, in the internet, it was just, if you want to know historical, the internet was just coming into line and people were discovering you could actually go out on the internet and look for things. So in this task force, no, I mean, you can't believe the different ideas. What are we going to do? And by the way, when it became a suicide cluster, even though the media has all these rules about when and if they'll publicize suicides, every single time the three clusters that I referred to, once the third suicide completion occurred, then the media can no longer, and 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 I, I don't think I don't know that this is written down anywhere, but it, but the media could not really contain. They felt like they had a, an obligation to let the community know that they have had three suicides in these instances at this school in a short, relatively short period of time, and so those in all three instances that I'm aware of all been heavily publicized. Uh, on the third, once the third one occurred. And so there was, I remember those meetings up in our old Boulder office and we had all these different people from the private sector, from school settings. And we had uh, Julie Summers and I want to do a shout out to Julie as a part of those early days. And I don't want to forget her and Maggie Fox, uh, Maggie Thomas in those days. And, but Julie and I really kind of coordinated that. And, and we began to have people you know, just all kinds of ideas. And then we said, finally, we said, why don't we go out instead of recreate the wheel? Why don't we go out and look and see what's out there? And and man, just all the dominoes fell in place. We reached out and they found this program. They were trying outside of New York City called the Columbia Teen Screen, developed at Columbia University. We contacted them and we began to have phone conversations with them. They had been 10 years in development of what now was a laptop computer-based program. Again, technology changes in those days. It blew our mind that somebody could put a set of headphones on a laptop and that laptop would talk to them and ask them questions. And these questions would then be answered by the by the team as they took it. And that these teams would be very honest with these laptop computers in this program, which, by the way, we still use some, although we're transitioning out of that right now. 
to another tool. But but it was a mind blowing. And but in those days, they were trying to find out. We know this works in New York City. Would it work in other places in the country? And Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a place in Florida, just by coincidence, reached out to them at exactly the right time, and they began to come out here. And I still remember when we brought in a lot of school counselors to hear them present. It was mind boggling to everybody. You mean this is what we're going to do here? Wow. And it, again, people don't think anything about that now. But anyway, we finally had a hard time finding schools that would even let us try it. And finally, Broken Arrow High School allowed us to try that. And we did the first pilot there. Oh, my God, we didn't. We were so scared. We didn't know what we were doing. The Columbia people were out with us holding our hand. And the, the Columbia people, they didn't do that for, you know, you had to do it yourself in the future years. But they were they were learning right along with we were learning. We formed incredible relationships with those guys and missed them dearly. And we developed that and we began then to other finally other schools began to and we began to do Columbia Teen Screen. And the, the teen screen is an incredible tool. It has limitations uh, when you have to have parental permission. That's a barrier sometimes, often is. And but but boy, as a tool to identify kids, substance abuse, maybe child abuse that's going on in some cases, you know, anxiety, depression, suicidal thinking, physical health issues. I mean, it covered a whole gamut of different parent-child issues going on, which allowed us to help and reach out to a family if, if the young person scored positive to see how we might be able to help and help them get referred for more in-depth assessment for their young person. Uh, the old thing in prevention, you know, people would ask us, well, how do you know it works? Well, if, it, if you prevented a suicide, how do you know you prevented that suicide? But I tell you, uh, Matt, I've had, unfortunately, in my career, both prior to coming to the Mental Health Association and after the Mental Association, I have gone out to school after school after school in the aftermath of a suicide. And uh, there is nothing worse. Anybody listening who's been a part of that knows that that's, there is nothing worse to lose a young person. And so the Mental Health Association, we really went all headlong into suicide and mental health preventative work in schools. And Safe Team was born out of that. Same time, there was Teen Screen, was came out of Columbia. Safe Team, which still lives and breathes, gets neglected, but it, it's just like a program that makes so much sense. It just seemed like it won't go away. And we're thankful for that. And I'm really proud of that because I was very, very involved in the development with people, teachers from Booker T. Washington, Shout out to Dr. Rebecca Simcoe on that. And there were many others involved in that, but her, she in particular, out at Bixby, we began to really develop that model. And as a as a really eyes and ears on the ground, the first logo developed by the art class out at Booker T. Washington on that was a lighthouse. So the idea being it was a lighthouse beacon for uh, young people to find safe harbor, but it was also, uh, that beacon was also in the, on the lookout for any young person who might be in trouble to identify that early on and to intervene early before it would progress to a young person maybe making an attempt or taking their own life. And so anyway, so safe team and, and teen screen in those years and suicide prevention. And now eventually, of course, there was in those years, the Charles Seeger seminar on depression, losing my friend and neighbor, Charles Seeger, and he, his widow, Catherine Seeger, and I began to talk to and have many conversations in our own dealing with our own grief of losing Charles. And we, this idea to have a, a, an annual uh, seminar in, in Charles's honor, which we did. And we did all kinds of different things and suicide prevention through those 10, 12 years we did that seminar. We finally let it, allowed it to sunset. But boy, what, look what came out of that, Matt. One of the last year we did it, we brought in QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. And 
QPR lives in honor of Charles and Catherine, her work and the lot, the work of effort on how to ask a question to save a life. And now we are all in on QPR and we're out to have everybody in the state of Oklahoma to go through that one hour training on how to ask a question and save a life. All that fit together. And so again, even though QPR actually came more later, but it was really an outgrowth of those 10, 12 years that we did this Charles Seeger seminar on suicide and depression. So those were those were heady times and but they were dynamic, powerful times, Matt. And it was always a partnership with staff and volunteers. It never was done. Whether those volunteers were on the board, it didn't matter. If you wanted to be a volunteer at the Mental Health Association, all you gotta do is show up and the and that was the deal. It was like, come on down, you wanna be a part of it, be a part of this. By the way, here in the last part, I just want to do a shout out to Sue and John Horath. And, you know, of course, Sue is gone and, and John is still around. We don't see John as much as we would like to or hear from him, but I still really can't read a, a, spread, a financial spreadsheet. And that's a little, I'll finally confess that secret. That's actually a pretty well-known, dirty little secret in the organization. I can read it, but I'm extremely slow at reading it. But I have, I've understood in the larger picture how the money works, but I knew right away, I used to say, I don't necessarily know how to, I'm not an accountant, but I want accountant, a good accountant sitting right next to me. Jason Packer, Bill's son, was early on, but then he left for bigger and better things. And then Sue Horth came and we hired Sue. And in those days, we only had one accountant. Man, she was a great partner and we I miss her terribly. And uh, she did an incredible job for us. And old, old Sue used to be like, uh, and I let her do it too. She was like an old dog up there guarding the money. And uh, boy, I mean, I don't know how many people over the years would come back and they'd go up there asking Sue for something. And if it cost money, they'd like an old dog, she'd bite on them. And she'd snap, snap at them and they'd come filing out, coming downstairs and boy, they'd come down to my office and shut the door and they were either mad at her or they were crying or uh, upset or she intimidated many, many people. I'm not going to mention those names, but there's a few of them out there listening right now that they're thinking, yeah, I was one of those. She had me intimidated for a long time. I always give Leah Brumbaugh, and I want to do a shout out for Leah. Leah and I raised a lot of money together. She was our development director for eight years. And and I wish I had more time to tell the Leah story, but Leah Brumbaugh, who now is over at OU and development over there, and, and she she was somebody who was, you talking about smart and, and uh, very subtle, and Leah had her ways. And she was kind of the first one I ever saw that she convinced Sue that she was as worried about the money and how much we were spending and how much we had in the bank as uh, Sue did. And once Sue realized, and I, I used to tell people that was a secret, and you want to find the secret combination into Sue's heart, convince her that you are as concerned about our money. You got Sue as a friend for life. And uh, Lee was the first one I've ever watched, really, who could figure that combination out. And, and Sue and Leah, they were partners. And you want your financial people and your development people to be able to work very closely together. You still want them to be independent. And that's a really important sort of thing I learned over the years. Those entities need to be independent. And I used to tell Sue all the time, Sue, you can tell, you can stop me if I'm wanting to spend some money and you don't think it's a good idea or we don't have the money or you have questions about it. And I liked her in that role. I allowed that to happen. She was like an old guard dog up there. And Sue, wherever you're at, dear, we miss you. We love you. And uh, you were a great, great partner. We miss uh, John and John, of course, longtime volunteer. And back in the day, we used to have the John Horath uh, Award. That was always a big award that we gave to people every year in John's name in honor of his battles with his own disability issues and after a, a, very, a very severe stroke that he had. 
anyway, uh, you know, those are people that were very instrumental in those days too, Matt, that during this time, both staff and different volunteers, lots and lots happened in those middle years that really went into the foundation and the pieces and the building block. Uh, again, sometimes it was planned out and sometimes we'd look back and go, wow, look what, we, what, look what we've got here.